0: Hello and welcome to the Week in 60 Minutes broadcast by Spectator TV on this Thursday, the 9th of March. My name is Freddie Gray and I will be your host today. On the show this week, we'll look first to America, uh, where the battle of Ron versus Don is shaping up. That's Ron DeSantis versus Donald Trump, their scrap for the Republican nomination in next year's presidential election. I'll be joined by Andrew Coburn and Danielle Lee Thompson. Next, we'll turn to Westminster, and the political news is all about immigration this week and Suella Bravman. I'll be joined by The Spectator's brilliant political editor, Katie Balls. And from London, we'll go to Sweden and talk about the very grisly topic of Swedish gangland culture, and gun crime. I'll be joined by Anne Turnquist to discuss that. And then we'll talk about cycling. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy around cycling this week after the death of a cyclist who had an altercation with a pedestrian. The pedestrian Oriel Grey has been convicted of manslaughter as a result. I will be joined by two Marys, Mary Dejewski, one of our contributors, and Mary Wakefield, our commissioning editor, to talk about that. And lastly, what's the matter with corsets? The cast of Bridgerton have been making a bit of a fuss about corsets, that's the item of clothing, and whether they are too painful to wear. I'll be discussing this difficult debate with Francesca Peacock. And before we get going in earnest, uh, I'd like to remind you that if you like Spectator TV, you should subscribe to Spectator TV, and you can do that by clicking the subscribe button at the bottom of your screens now, and then don't forget to click the bell icon at the top of your screens to make sure you never, ever miss an episode. And while you're at it, why don't you subscribe to The Spectator magazine? It is, after all, the oldest and greatest magazine in the world. At the moment, we're doing a special offer for for just £12. You can get 12 weeks of the magazine in print and online. And on top of that, we'll throw in a free £20 Amazon voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer to subscribe. Let's begin on American politics. For the cover of the magazine this week, I've written a piece about the looming or emerging battle between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump for the Republican nomination for the presidential election next year. Donald Trump spoke at CPAC last weekend where he tried to rally the conservative base in his favor. And I think it's fair to say that he's had a good few weeks politically He's gaining in the polls and is emerging once more as the favourite to win the nomination. He does face a significant challenge, however, in the form of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has not officially declared as a presidential candidate, but everybody knows he's running. So who is going to win? I'm joined now by Andrew Coburn, who is Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, as well as Danielle Lee Thompson, who is a scholar and strategist. Andrew, I'll start with you. Uh, You wrote what I think is the best piece I've read about Ron DeSantis called Swamplandia in Harper's Magazine. Um, I wonder if you might start by telling us a little bit about your understanding of Ron DeSantis and how it differs from what perhaps we've heard here in Britain and internationally.
1: Well, the general sort of take on Ron DeSantis as uh, put out in the media is that you know that he's a very ideological sort of politician, and that he, you know, campaigns against woke. He was so outraged by Disney's sort of wokist liberal positions that he went after them. That he, uh, you know, that he's generally, you know, a plucky fighter in the culture wars. Um, and that's been, you know, that's the sort of main uh, thrust, the sort of schwerpunkt of his uh, of his campaign. And I point out that actually what he is is you know, the most distinguishing feature of Ron is that he's a sort of corporate toady. Um, that he's been, uh, ever since, well, certainly ever since he started campaigning for governor in, uh, in 2018, that, you know, he's left no stone unturned or no, uh, no donor unturned in order to, um, you know, shake them down for really enormous sums of money, which he's been amazingly successful at. I mean, that's, He's really peeled away the uh, main sort of big Republican, big donor base. Um, and he's been very assiduous at that, both in Florida itself, with rather, I think, unfortunate results for Floridians, but also for the, uh, you know, across the country where they all, all the billionaires thrilled to his message.
0: Certainly got a lot of money behind him. And the Fox uh, Rupert Murdoch empire also seems to be supporting him quite a lot. Um, do you think in recent weeks, uh, after the midterms, there was a lot of uh, Ron DeSantis hype? Uh, the New York Post called him Ron de future. Uh, Yeah. Do you think that um, that has faded slightly in recent weeks? Certainly the polls suggest Trump is pulling ahead again among Republican primary voters. Do you think as DeSantis's campaign comes into contact with reality, it may start to disintegrate?
1: Yes, I think so. I mean, it's been, um, you know, certainly the Trump faction have been, or uh, Trump camp have been saying, I think with some justice and accuracy, that, you know, once DeSantis starts to sort of go across the country and have to talk to ordinary people, which he doesn't like doing very much, he doesn't like people, I don't think, um, um, unless they're sort of proper and huge checks. Uh That, you know, that'll, you know, people will sense that. Um, you know, there's a sort of curiously, I mean, I compared him in the piece to Richard Nixon and, you know, the, you know, they're both, both politicians who didn't like very, people very much, but had to pretend they did. Um, but that sort of comes through, you know, whereas Trump, you know, Trump is sort of, is, um, uh, is a, he has this sort of extra sort of, comedic twist to him he uh he he sort of almost laughs at himself there's always a slightly tongue-in-cheek sort of uh um uh, aspect to Trump which I uh I think people people like and you know can you imagine Ron DeSantis trying to do address a Trump rally you know that sort of MAGA crowd I mean he'd pull you know he'd, he'd be completely wooden so I think um I'm not surprised that the uh DeSantis' um, aura is
0: fading a bit. Danielle, uh, you wrote uh, a very entertaining piece um, about the vibes at CPAC, which is the Conservative Political Action Conference. Um, uh, Trump addressed it last week. And for you, it fell quite flat, despite a lot of the talk about Trump's success in the polls and his rallying of the Conservative base in recent weeks.
2: Yes. um, You know, the Conservative Political Action Conference has been a flagship event for conservatism since 1974. And I remember going there in the years after Trump just got elected and there was energy in the air. There was that sort of spirit, some sort of transcendent quality that this was something new. He was offering something different that expanded beyond just the usual culture war dribble of the Republican Party. And this year, uh, as I said in the piece, the vibes were off. Uh, I describe vibes as something like a sense of authenticity and shared spirit. And everyone there, uh, from the journalists to the hardcore MAGA types, to people who worked, uh, you know, who have spoken at CPAC for years, felt that something was off. I would say that Trump was just about the only person who had a little bit of, verve in the room. And honestly, I think it was because he still has a bit of a nationalist populist appeal. In his two-hour address, the majority of what he spoke about was, um, you know, free trade fanatics and anti-military intervention, and also just taking on the establishment. I counted in my recordings, he had about 30 seconds dedicated to Uh, like, transgender uh, insanity and uh, CRT. But that is very different from DeSantis, who is something of a culture war chat GPT of sorts.
0: Do you think uh, the reason the atmosphere was perhaps a little bit flat is that Trump conservatism or or Trumpism... Uh, has failed, it seems, at the ballot three times running now in 2018 in the midterms, 2020 in the presidential election, and 2022, although it didn't exactly fail, but but uh, a lot of high-profile Trump candidates um, failed. Do you think there's a sense that then they're on the losing side now?
2: You know, it's really hard when you make a career as a winner, as a as the image of luxury and success to confront the fact that you failed. And it's also really hard to claim underdog status when you've been president of the United States. That only kind of works so long. And on top of that, Trump's style, his sort of bombastic, aggressive uh, style, which works for him because he's been doing that on television and the press for 30 years or more, Uh, When other people try to copy it, his surrogates and those around him, it continues to fall flat and it seems inauthentic. So it doesn't have the vibe, so to speak. And so in some ways, by trying to copy Trump as CPAC has and failing to capture the authenticity, you kind of fail to capture what is interesting about Trump, which is a more transcendent appeal.
0: Did you uh, speak to the people there at CPAC about DeSantis? He wasn't there, obviously. Um, it probably would have been pretty stupid for him to go because he would have lost the straw poll, uh, which showed DeSantis with a huge lead among CPAC delegates.
2: Yes, I did speak to them. You know, it was firmly Trump MAGA territory, a lot of Bannon War Room fans. Uh, mostly whom are older women, I found, uh, were at CPAC. And I spoke to them. The people who were there for the first time, of course, were excited about it because they were with like-minded people. But the folks who were veterans of CPAC, who've been there for years, who know what it was like in 2017 or 2018, or even before that, in the Tea Party days, uh, they felt something was flat. There just simply weren't as many people. Fox News wasn't there. Charlie Kirk's uh, Turning Point USA wasn't there. So the sort of college Republican sect wasn't there. It felt a little bit empty, quite frankly, um, and not as energetic.
0: Andrew, do you think uh, we may be in danger of missing uh, de appeal? Because uh, even though, you know, at CPAC and among conservative activists, he doesn't have that, that Trumpy uh, pizzazz, uh, he has still got, according to polls, about 30 percent of the Republican vote. Uh, and he hasn't even officially started running yet. Uh, I think Nate Cohn at The New York Times uh, has calculated that he's doing better in early polls than Reagan, John McCain, Barack Obama or Joe Biden were at, at, at a similar stage. And. Um, When you look at the broader Republican electorate, uh, does he have more of a hold on them? Well, he'll
1: certainly get a big slice of them. I mean, but, you know, we're talking about, you know, who will get the biggest slice. I I still firmly believe it'll be Trump, especially when DeSantis, you know, has to cope with, you know, the the Nikki Haley's of this world or whoever else jumps in. I mean, it's not clear if there's going to be many of them, but when a sort of crowded field. I think it would be better for Trump if it's not a crowded field, actually, if it's just him versus DeSantis. If you imagine a debate stage with just the two of them, then Trump can unleash his full uh, rhetorical vehemence um, on DeSantis. If there's a whole bunch of them there, if they're all sort of nibbling at Trump, it might might go the other way. I I mean, I still, I mean, I, I, I can't, Somehow I can't see DeSantis really eating into the MAGA vote uh, too much. I mean, he'll get some of them and he'll certainly get all those, you know, or get a lot of those sort of suburban college Republicans or whatever who, um, uh, who like Trumpism without Trump, which is what, you know, in a lot of ways we get with DeSantis. And I think they, they may well detect, you know, there's a very sort of slithery aspect to DeSantis, which I think sort of comes through, um, So, you know, we're talking about who gets the nomination in the end. My money is still on Trump. And of course, you know, the Democrats are hoping fervently it's Trump um, and they don't like the idea of DeSantis at all. Um, You know, Trump as a, you know, as I, as I, as I wrote, he, he's going to very much run on the sort of nationalist anti-war, you know, he would have settled the Ukraine war within hours. He will settle it with the Ukraine war within hours. And DeSantis has edged towards that. He's signed onto the, no blank no blank check for ukraine uh, sort of stream, which is sort of the halfway house for republicans um but um you know DeSantis he'll run you know he's got anti woke you know his big thing was sort of anti vax or anti you know i'm I'm the one who kept Florida open um you know I defied fauci and all that um you know actually he didn't for quite a while it wasn't until he realized and this is you know he is very clever he 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 sensed that the MAGA crowd didn't, you know, were re- recoiled from the mandates, recoiled from the mandatory vaccines, re- recoiled from lockdowns and masks and all that. But, you know, by, I think even now and certainly by next year, I think all the sort of memories of that will have faded. So it won't be quite a, as potent a selling point as you might have hoped.
0: Daniel, Ukraine is already emerging as a major t- talking point. Uh, in the Republican primary. Um, Do you think that Donald Trump's kind of peace through through strength message that he, he would be able to solve it in a day by just talking to Vladimir Putin, do you think that has cut through, to use the slightly disgusting phrase?
2: Possibly. I think that Trump has always tried to appeal to an imagined middle America. So he visited uh, East Palestine in Ohio, if you recall, where the train uh, derailment occurred. And so there's this sort of blue collar culture culture that he tries to appeal to. And you have to remember, and as Steve Bannon points out on his podcast War Room all the time, that's where the boys who go to fight the wars are from. And so Trump is trying to appeal to that crowd. Like we don't want another Iraq and Afghanistan situation. We don't want another George Bush situation. We want to get out of it. So he really tries to position himself as an outsider on that issue. And what he said at his speech in CPAC was, I didn't get us involved in more wars. I got us out of them. And so that's his commitment that he's tried to make and position himself differently from people like DeSantis, who has already received like a passive endorsement from Jeb Bush uh, on Fox. So I think that that's something that we really have to look out for. It's hugely critical. And Americans, generally speaking, after having been in some ways red-pilled by those uh, wars on terrorism, they don't want it anymore. They don't want another mass, mass war.
0: Let's go back to DeSantis and vibes, Daniel. I think, uh, is it possible, I did a piece on it this week and I was thinking about this. Is it possible that DeSantis can create his own vibe? Because he is, uh, Andrew compared him to Nixon. He is, uh, he does have this professional, very serious uh, atmosphere about him. He does campaign quite belligerently against woke, which is obviously uh, quite an emotive issue. Um, do you think he can create his own vibe, which is uh, uh, different enough to Trumpism to inspire some optimism?
2: So I think that DeSantis really relies on this uh, cultural war division, which is honestly a classic tactic of the Republican Party. It's a sort of diversion away from maybe more systemic change around military interventionism or trade or tax which Trump uh, tried to take on uh, and that was his appeal. So DeSantis, I think it, I, I think it was one of you who said he's sort of cringe sometimes and DeSantis will have to kind of own his cringe if he's going to have something uh, vibey or authentic. So on the one hand, he can be pretty uh, belligerent with the press, but that's something he almost learned from Trump. And so is he going to be able to find his own authenticity in his wonkish nerdiness as opposed to trying to copy what is essentially just uh, uh, an opposition to the press, which became popularized in Trump, but honestly has its roots in generations and decades of conservatism and alternative media in conservatism. Uh, So we'll see if he can make his own authentic cringe.
0: Andrew, finally, um, De- DeSantis is uh, economically conservative, economically right wing, if you like. Um, sure. And uh, Trump is not. And uh, this week he's been hitting DeSantis pretty hard on the point that he will protect uh, Social Security and Medicare. Um, DeSantis came out very quickly and said so would he, um, but his voting record suggests otherwise. And that uh, means that Trump is on the side of a Republican Party that is increasingly working class, increasingly left wing, it seems, in its uh, economic ideas. Uh, do you think that's DeSantis' biggest problem? He's not really left wing enough for the new Republican Party.
1: Well, that's an attractive thought. Um, you know, I just want to say something about DeSantis. You know, that he's got this huge 20 point victory in, uh, in, 20, uh, in the election. Um, in 22. But he, you know, he was up, it, it would have been hard for him to lose. I mean, because there were Democrats put up this pathetic character, Charlie Crist, the Democratic Party in Florida Florida's essentially sort of fallen apart, the National Democrats had given up on it, didn't give them any money. Um, DeSantis had finally come around to this popular sort of anti-lockdown position, which was very popular in, in Florida. So although, you know, he carries the aura of sort of triumphant success with him um i'm not so sure that's going to sort of you know that the, that he's really that brilliant and successful a politician um you know he didn't he scraped home uh in his first election um with the help of trump which trump will certainly not let him forget um he you know i think i think once we're into the republican primaries um I think this sort of populist you know his attempt to be a populist will fall pretty flat especially when if Trump starts chanting the names of all the sort of billionaires who've given him money and you know and actually Trump might have a have a go if <laughs> Trump the Trump the communist might have a go at sort of talking about the incredible favors DeSantis has done for insurance companies for you know landlord companies for all the rest in in, in Florida so um I think it could
0: be...
1: It will certainly be a fun race. I'm looking forward to it.
0: I think it will be fun. Uh, Daniel, finally, I'd actually like to ask you one more question, and I'm sorry if this is sexist, because I'm asking you because you're a woman, but there's been a lot of talk about Casey uh, DeSantis, uh, Ron DeSantis' wife, uh, and that she is apparently the the sort of driving force, the brains behind the operation, uh, and has actually pushed Ron DeSantis into running uh, because he's actually a bit reluctant. Do you have a sense of her and whether she might have her own vibes?
2: Well, I know that uh, the First Lady of Florida definitely has a style that is very distinct. I haven't seen someone wear opera gloves to a speech in a very long time. She definitely has a kind of Jackie O energy Which, you know, if you spend any time in CPAC or among certain sects of conservatism, there's a sort of, uh, you know, uh, performative femininity that happens in a way. Uh, It definitely is fun to dress up for CPAC, I'll say that. Um, But I would say that she definitely has ambition. She's a former television personality herself. And so that would definitely help him in trying to seem more authentic or speaking to the kind of local television news tabloid style that Americans are really familiar with, that they wake up to every day on local news. So possibly, you know, her presence and her energy and her ability to connect to that, to audiences, and I mean that by television audiences, might actually help uh, Ron in the long run.
0: It's certainly going to be very interesting. Danielle and Andrew, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now let's turn to Westminster. Uh, Suella Bravman, the Home Secretary, has been in the news this week following the publication of her illegal migration bill. There's also been a leak of an email in which she referred to the activist blob, including civil servants who have been trying to block the government from addressing the small boats crisis. I'm joined by Katie Balls, our indefatigable political editor. Uh, And Katie, let's start with uh, this bill and the reaction to it and the leak of this email. Is Suella Brobbin in a lot of trouble?
3: I'm not sure if she is. I mean, I I think on the civil servant point, um, so there, there was a row about an email which went out through the Conservative Party, um, which claimed to be from Sue Ada Braverman. I think anyone who read it would have assumed that given it was signed by her. Um, and it uh, laid some of the blame for the lack of progress on small boats over the years at the door of civil servants. Now, lots of Tory MPs will say this publicly. Ministers may say it privately. But for the Home Secretary to say that, um, that led to several complaints, is it a breach of her role as uh, Home Secretary. But she has since said uh, she did not sanction that email. So so the RAV has now moved to, um, (laughs) if that is the case, and I think number 10 are not disputing that line of events. um, You know, how did that come to be? And it it is a problem, but it's a problem which I think she has some defense for. Um, And then I think more generally, um, you have a situation where lots of people are criticizing the Home Secretary this week. But the question, and I think one we, we won't really know for a few months is, are the people criticising the Tories the people, that the Tories want to criticise them? Yes. (laughs) Um, In terms of Labour, refugee charities, uh, legal figures. So it becomes a wedge issue. Mm. Um, because right now, I think um, Tory MPs are, are pretty united around the bill that's been proposed. Um, the real problem, I think, is is it actually workable because you get a short-term hit in terms of Tory MPs saying, yes, the, the government's sounding tough. So Braveman is sounding tough on this. Mm. Um, but for some of the reasons you just outlined, there's questions about how much change is this really going to make? And if the Tory party can't stem the problem, then they're in a lot of trouble.
0: And let's talk about Europe, because uh, a few of the papers today are talking about how Europe is signalling its discomfort with this bill, uh, and it's a very big change in mood music between the government um, and Brussels, because uh, last week, of course, we had Northern Ireland the protocol and so on, and there was this strange harmony seemed to be breaking out between uh, Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen, um, and yet today we're reading that the European Union is saying that it risks peace over the Brexit deal even bringing in the possibility that it might affect uh, Ukraine and and sort of Europe's efforts to repel Vladimir Putin which sounds a bit far-fetched to me. Um, What's going on there?
3: So I think what we've seen with this bill is the government is pushing it to the limits of what is legally um, OK with the current uh, agreements we have. Mm. And uh, I think from the letter you mentioned which Gerald Braveman wrote to MPs saying there's an over 50 percent chance this will uh, not meet the standards or breach the ECHR. Mm. Now. I've spoken to figures in government who were quite surprised that Sabella Braverman used that phrase, you know, over 50% in her letter to MPs. Mm. Um, and they wonder if that was uh, more uh, a political move. Um, because I was saying on this specifically, she's admitting um, that, you know, the bill could could struggle. Well, in the in the world that we are currently in, to lots of Tory MPs, they like the idea that this could breach the ECHR. Mm. So it's so some think she is showing some leg to the right of the party by saying, We've gone so tough, I've pushed things so far, it, it might not pass the test when uh, in government I think that they are more hopeful about um how this will go. I think on the EU reaction so far, the European Commission figures that have been quite critical. I think what would be really interesting to see is where are EU leaders on this? Mm. Because when it comes to, uh, for example, the uh, first uh, French-UK conference in some time where um, Rishi Sunak is trying to charm Emmanuel Macron, and I think deals with France are seen as uh, almost as important um, as this bill in terms of um, stemming the flow of small boats in the short term at least. Do they manage to have, I mean, hate to use the word, but some people are saying bromance, Mm. and make some progress there? Or do figures such as Emmanuel Macron start to criticise the policy? Um, In number 10, I think the hope is that Actually, they have, uh, You've had the foreign secretary doing quite a lot of laying the groundwork with EU leaders, and therefore you could have a situation where you know these problems are ones being faced by lots of the countries within the EU. So there could be more patience for how far the UK is trying to go. So we've got to we're back in that Brexit phase to see is the European Commission speaking mm. for uh, member states, or actually are we going to see a little bit of a difference um, in terms of what we hear from both?
0: Give us a bit of intelligence on, on le bromance between Rishi Sunak and Emmanuel Macron. I mean, they do seem like quite similar figures in some ways. Uh, they're both quite small, for one thing. Uh, they also have, uh, they're financially literate. They have experience in matters of finance. Um, and they seem to get on, we'll, we'll see today. Uh, and certainly given how bad things got with Liz Truss as prime minister between France and, and Britain, uh, there's a lot of hope among uh, people who want Britain and France to get along, but uh, th- they will get along well.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think given the rocky relations between the UK and France, um, under Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, and yes, Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron, they were once described ha- having a bromance, yeah. um, but it never seemed to lead to much because of some of the, you know, the difference in approaches on issues. Um, I think it's Richie Student doesn't need to do much <laughs> to look as though his bromance is better than Boris Johnson's and Macron's was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the fact that you have the protocol deal is actually really significant in terms of improving relations between the UK and France. And uh, part of the reason Richard Student got that and you had the um, press conference where Ursula uh, von der Leyen was talking about Dear Rishi, which I think sums up everything about why, how uh, I think uh, lots of figures in the EU think that Rishi is something they're much more able to do business with. And I think one of the problems Boris Johnson always had was because he had signed the original Brexit deal Mm. to then try and seek changes to it or say, you know, this is all a mistake, meant it was really hard for the EU to then trust him. So they've now decided that they trust Rishi Sunak. I think the fact that the protocol deal has landed pretty well on the UK side, yes, we may get some rebellions, but the fact that we still haven't heard from the ERG or the DUP, I think at the very least that means that this is not turning into a fiery showdown. Mm. Um, And and I think that is adding to confidence that this is a leader they can work with. Um, And Rishi Sunak does want to do things differently in terms of diplomatic relations. Mm-hmm. I think it's been quite a point of thinking by being polite, uh, working hard privately. He thinks you can get more than sometimes playing more to the gallery. Um, so I think I think we'll see that um, uh, when they when they meet. And as you say, quite similar in some ways, though, I think Emmanuel Macron is perhaps uh, one who uh, is still quite a performer in public.
0: He is. He is. And in fact, there's never been I don't think there's been any significant male Western leader with which he hasn't had some sort of bromance. Yeah, exactly. he gets about.
3: He does. So the question is, you know, can can they take it to the next
0: level? Can they take it to the next level? Good question, Katie. Uh, great to have an update as always. Now, let's look north to Sweden. I think it's well established by now that uh, Sweden is not the liberal paradise that a lot of people thought it was. However, the extent of Swedish crime and Swedish gang culture is less well known. In the magazine this week, Paulina Nerding writes a very interesting piece about the way in which Swedish gangs are slowly taking over in some cities, including uh, taking over local politics. I'm joined now by the crime reporter and author Anne Turnkvist. Can you give us a a lay of the land? How bad is crime in Sweden now?
4: When it comes to shootings, uh, we're talking about 40 shootings every year, just in Stockholm, which is Sweden's biggest town. And 40 might not sound like a lot, but we're a small country. So you have to kind of multiply by 10 to get a kind of a UK um, um, comparison. This has gotten worse and worse in the past 10 years when I started working. When I wrote my first book, it was a murder that was that shocked everyone because, you know, people were killing each other with Kalashnikovs and Um but it's, I just had this feeling back then that this might just be like a little, you know, prelude. And unfortunately that's exactly what's happened. And people don't even react anymore when there's another shooting in the newspapers. So it's bad. And um and the politicians are <laughs> trying to fix it, um, but some of the reforms have just been a bit short-sighted.
0: Why is it, do you think, that Sweden is failing so singularly? I mean, other countries, Germany, for instance, has high levels of similar types of immigration, uh, similar problems with Islamist groups. What is it about Sweden that they're failing so badly on it?
4: I mean, it's a a really important question. I I would like to note that this, the gangland has nothing to do with religion whatsoever, uh, but it is, of course, the centers are in these um, suburbs where a lot of the young men have a parent or a grandparent from another country. The main reason, and, you know, police officers say this, politicians say this, social workers say this, parents say this, is that the Swedish school system is failing young men or boys. Their grades are, it's like the rest of the Western world. I mean, the, the girls are doing better in school. And if you don't do well in school, like you don't have a lot of career options. Um, there's also a recent book. Um, uh, a lawyer had spoken to some of our younger clients, and they just feel completely apart from Swedish society. I mean, they don't even have like a concept of what you could maybe work with. I mean, you like you obviously know you can work in a restaurant, but in terms of like there actually being career options apart from like, I mean, you can be a footballer, you can be a rapper, or you work in your uncle's Restaurant, um, and it's incredibly limiting. As for the part why we're shooting each other so much, people can't really figure out why that's so unique for Sweden. I wouldn't say that the rest of Europe doesn't have the same kind of problems, I mean, with the drugs. The thing that we are really struggling to understand is like, why are we the ones who are shooting each other so much? Like, what, what is it that's special about us Swedes to go like crazy? and one of my theories because there's really no like consensus about the reason is that it just has ended up in a situation where where you don't bring a knife to gunfights so a few people get guns and then all of a sudden you know that your rival has a gun so you get your own gun and almost all the guns are from the former yugoslavia leftovers from the war it's it's not difficult to get them here and and we are also just lately seeing what they've seen in um I mean, they saw this in L.A. a few years ago. I mean, you can print, you can 3D print weapons. So, you know, get, I mean, I don't think there is any way to get rid of the weapons. We have to get rid of the reasons why people are shooting each other.
0: And forgive me if I'm indulging in in cliches here, but is it something to do with uh, the soft liberalism of Sweden? In that there isn't really a law and order culture in Sweden, because for a long time, there's never really needed to be.
4: I mean, I certainly have interviewed people over the years whose parents have moved here from other countries who call call the legal system soft. One really important thing, which is the theme of my second book where a witness was actually murdered um, in the middle of the day because he was helping the police, um, is that basically, like, why should I testify? Why should I move and have to, like, pull my kids out of school? Why do I have to live with death threats? Um, if A, the gangster I'm testifying against, might not go to prison, and if he does, he'll be out I don't know, like in seven years. I mean, what's most I mean, basically you commit a really bad crime in Sweden and you a lot of people get twelve years in prison, so you're out up to two thirds of your sentence. You can get eighteen or you can get life, but even if you get life, you have the possibility of applying for parole after twenty years. So so I think that is like people just are too scared and it's not worth it to testify against them.
0: As Paulina says in her piece, though, uh, where, where the authorities don't have control, gangsters will start to take control. And in fact, in the city of, uh, forgive me if I'm pronouncing it wrong, Uh the gangsters are actually getting involved in politics. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
4: Well, there was kind of like a what well, looked to the beginning like just kind of like infighting in uh, the social democrat party locally <clears throat> and uh, the local leader was deposed but it was this like membership meeting where a vote was taken against her and all of a sudden like 50 new members showed up and um and they could be tied to different um organized crime groups after the journalists looked at it a little bit closer so the suspicion is that like they didn't like this politician for for various reasons, and they just recruited all their like crooked friends and you know basically made sure that she had to leave her post. This is under investigation, and I also just spontaneously felt when I read Paulina Neuding's uh, article that while it's factually correct, I think we also have to remember that Sweden's small, Stockholm's smaller, the suburbs of Stockholm like both get are even smaller. So like who's related with whom and who's friends with who and who went to school with whomever, like, it's, it's very like, how do you draw a line between who is like a criminal slash connected to criminals, et cetera. I don't doubt that this needs to look at, be look at, looked into properly, which is being done. I hope. Um, but the dividing, like it's a very fine line nowadays between like who's up to no good and who's maybe, should be speaking up a bit more when people are up to no good. And that, That's that, a very big answer, I know, but it's just... No, not at all. I, d- d- I mean,
0: that is the real shocking factor, isn't it? It's the, the smallness of Sweden uh, and yes, the, the, the bigness uh, of its crime problem.
4: Yeah, I know, and it's huge. Um, one thing that I think several people have pointed out is that actually this town just south of Stockholm called Södertälje I worked uh, for a long time. They were the ones who kind of had this crime first. So ten years ago, God, sorry, it's like ugh, it's twelve years ago now. Time flies, uh, and they had a problem with like infiltration in city hall, and um, and they really tried to get at it, and and also people just, I mean, there's a lot. They, people were defrauding the social welfare system. Uh, there was a huge investigation at the time into like welfare fraud. Um, I mean, it was one of Sweden's biggest police investigations ever. And they did nail a few people. And one of them um, was related to a very well-known politician. So that kind of illustrates as well. It's like, okay, so his sister's a dickhead, but does that necessarily mean he is? Like, what's his role? I mean, it just becomes a bit... Yes. You, know.
0: you mentioned that uh, and you, uh, the reaction in Sweden has sometimes turned towards a sort of uh, blame immigrants uh, mm-hmm. mentality. Uh, has there also been uh, the opposite problem, in a way, of um, authorities or people involved with these crimes don't want to be racist, and so therefore they're not talking openly about what's going on?
4: People say that, and I do know that quite an outspoken public servant in the northwest of Stockholm did like lose his job under mysterious circumstances. Um but he wasn't so much talking about... He wasn't talking about immigration. He was just like, look at this stuff. Like, look, we need to fix ABCD. And um, and it's almost like... I mean, Swedes are really bad at taking criticism. Like, we're so proud. We're so proud that the world knows us. It's like, we're so logical. And we're so liberal. And like, oh, we got it right. Um, so there's like this huge thing where you're just like, ooh, he's criticizing me. Like, we can't take it. We, like, it's just like some kind of collective psychosis. Um, so in Sadatalia, the Social Democrats and other politicians have told me, we have been telling our national counterparts at national level about these problems for like 15 years. And they do perceive that 15 years ago, like the general consensus was that, oh, we don't need to talk about that. Whereas they were like, listen, like our town is is about to blow up. And it did blow up.
0: You mentioned that uh, a lot of voters are very concerned about crime, that it's the top concern uh, among voters are, is there a, is there a, are there politicians who are actually proposing actions or taking actions that are making a difference and not just talking
4: i mean the social democrat government which was in power until last elections did have this like it was like a, a long list of reforms that we're going to put through and a lot of them were quite reasonable um so they were working through that for example they made um They introduced tougher sentencing for aggravated guns possession or illegal arms possession. Um, and the new government, um, which is conservative and relies on the support of the Sweden Democrats in parliament, they produce this enormous document. It was just like, this is what we're going to do in Sweden. And I had, I, I held a little seminar the other day where I was, I was going through the list of all their law and order, um, proposals but I was doing it in a very like I read it and like commented on it spontaneously as I was going like oh yeah wonderful not going to work but also some of them like "Mm." and one of the things this new document says is like we have to invest heavily in social services but then tons of parties have said that forever and I don't know if those investments are working there are some things so this is really boring this is a technical level But we have really strict privacy laws, which means that there are actual legal obstacles for the school, the police, social services um, and other kind of official agencies and social services functions to share information about young people, uh, which means that sometimes people just fall through the cracks. There's no coordination. And sometimes I've been really working. They're called like social. um, I can't translate this well. Like, it's, it's it's kind of funny because in satsgup means, like, you go in and do something, but it also means SWAT team. So it's like a social SWAT team, <laughs> but it's actually people, like, working together to help young people.
0: And how, I've read a few pieces about it, but it's difficult for someone like me to understand. How uh, widespread and popular is gangster culture, gangster rap among Swedish youth?
4: It's super popular. Um... And it has been for about 10 years. And and the police aren't happy about it. One of the police officers compared it to like people listening to like white power music, you know? Like, what's the difference? You're glorifying killing. I think there's a huge amount of differences in between them, but you know, not being a music reporter, I'm gonna leave that to the music reporters. But it's huge, yeah.
0: It's definitely not something uh, Brits associate with Sweden. And we'll leave it there, but thank you very much for joining us. Next up, cycling versus pedestrians. There's been a lot of interest in Britain this week over the sad story of a woman cyclist who died after an altercation with Oriel Gray, a pedestrian. Oriel Gray has been charged with manslaughter. But should Aurel Gray really be going to prison? I'm joined by Mary Dajewski, who is a Spectator contributor, as well as another Mary, Mary Wakefield, who is our commissioning editor. Mary Dajewski, I'll start with you. Um, your piece, which was under the headline, cyclists have been given a license to ride on the pavement, uh, went down uh, a storm on the Spectator website. It attracted a lot of interest. Uh, and judging from the comments and so on, there is a lot of concern out there, obviously, especially among motorists, and pedestrians, um, that cyclists are being given uh, the right to ride on the pavement, and that the treatment of Aureole Grey is disgraceful. Could you just outline for any viewers that haven't uh, been following it, what's happened to Aureole Grey, and the details of that particular case?
5: Well, what appears to have happened is that she was walking along and it has to be said she is a 46 year old woman um, who is partially sighted um, and has various other disabilities. And she was walking along the pavement and she felt that a cyclist um, was coming rather close to her cycling on the pavement. And what is said is that, and was given in evidence, is that she shouted, swore at the cyclist to get on the road and get off the pavement. And then she put her hand out, and there is also a question of whether she actually hit her. But the consequence was catastrophic and tragic, which was that the cyclist um, was pushed or fell off her bike into the path of a vehicle that could not stop. And she was killed. And that is the source of the manslaughter charge that the cyclist faced. And she was convicted of manslaughter. She was sentenced to three years in prison. And um, I think her lawyer says that she is um, going to appeal. But as yet, there's no news on that. It's also, I have to say, that I'm not clear whether she's been given bail or whether she's been sent straight to prison. My impression is
0: that she's been sent to prison. And, uh, I mean, I've seen the video and it's, it's pretty horrifying because of what happens. But uh, it's not clear whether she pushed her or, or not. But if, if Oriel Gray did push her, and of course everybody feels sorry for her in many ways because that was obviously not her intention to, uh, to kill this cyclist... Uh, if she did push her, though, that is uh, a direct cause of the death of the cyclist. So there is a case to be made um, that it is manslaughter if she did push her, is it? Is there not?
5: Yes. I mean, there, there's the same case that might be made um, against a cyclist or indeed a driver um, who knocks over somebody um, if he's um, speeding. Um, or um, there was a case of a cyclist who killed a um, pedestrian on a crossing, I think. Um, and he was sentenced to 18 months in prison, only 18 months, even though his bike was defective and he cut through a red light and he had no brakes. Um, It seems to me that there's a large, um, there's a complete disproportion here.
0: Yes. Um, Mary, number two. uh, uh, Mary says in her piece, you know, which of us has not at some point wanted to shout it at or wanted to shout at or even push a cyclist because cyclists are often quite obnoxious on the roads. Uh, They drive people crazy. Um, Do you share that feeling?
6: I do. I mean, I hate cyclists for the most part. Um, I think in this case, um, the worry is the disproportionate rate. Like you can hate a cyclist and sort of swear at them. And a lot of us behave very badly, but I do think there's a problem with the disproportionate rage people feel towards cyclists. And I do think it endangers them in some cases because we're going fast. You know, I've had people try and stick um, quite rightly in some ways, you know, a walking stick through my front wheel. Because they're enraged this is particularly kind of going through kenston gardens on a yeah you're a self-hating pardon. cyclist i'm a self-hating actually, cyclist yeah. but i mostly hate a different sort of cyclist but that's a, that's a getting a little esoteric the difference between cyclists <laughs> it's the commuting cyclists you know going down going super fast who are unbelievably rude who are the, the worst lot i think but um so some of the things you can do to a cyclist when you're feeling a bit cross actually is incredibly dangerous for them uh, in this case you know a spasm of rage in, in involves the death of someone So. One of the lessons here is, is I think, don't be so disproportionately furious that you forget what your actions can can do to someone going fast on a bike.
0: Mary Mary Dajewski, I think that's right, is it not? That um, cyclists are scared because uh, a lot of the time they're driving pretty fast through uh, quite dangerous roads. And the reason they behave in the way that they do, and it's a way of behaving that annoys a lot of people, is because they're frightened a lot of the time. And when people are scared, uh, they tend to act aggressively.
5: Well, I think that's partly true. But I think if, if, if you take London, and it has to be said, this incident actually didn't happen in London. Um, it happened in Huntingdon, which might be seen sort of philosophically as maybe closer to a cycling city such as Cambridge um, than to London. But if we look at London, um, then I would say look, London has spent... Exorbitant amounts of money trying to separate cyclists um, from pedestrians and cyclists from traffic. There are cycle lanes all over London that have backed up the traffic, that have extended people's journeys if they're in cars or buses. Um, incredibly, it now takes me twice as long to get from my flat to um, another part of central London than it did before the introduction of cycle lanes. Huge amounts of money, and the, you look. Look at these, cycle, these cycling lanes at many times of day and there's hardly anybody in them. All the cyclists are in, uh, are in the, the bus lanes or the car lanes because they find it quicker. But the car lanes and the bus lanes, they're now confined to 20 miles an hour. And what happens is that commuting cyclists are actually going faster than 20 miles an hour.
6: But Mary, that's not our fault. You know, direct your rage at Sadiq Khan. You're as a
5: cyclist. Here.
6: As a cyclist, <laughs> yeah. it's not
5: well. there's Mary, well, it and is your fault for is... not using the cycle. No,
6: why don't you know? We didn't ask for these cycle lanes. All of us. This is lo- there's a lot of local government um, a war on the car going on, and I blame Boris, frankly. But you know, that's another thing. Um, and but it's not the fault of individual cyclists. So I feel like we receive the built-up rage of the frustrated motorist who should be angry at government, both local and big government, for its war on, on cars. And that's not our fault. I didn't want a ridiculous cycle lane down the Melbourne Road, which frustrates me more than anyone else. You know, we're, 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 we're sort of channeled past bus stops where it's very hard not to hit anyone because the cycle lane goes straight past the you know, yes. place we... It's, I don't think it's our fault.
5: Well, I think it's your fault for not using the lanes that you've been but given. But wh- why should I have um, to use them if they're... Therefore, for riding on the pavement. I, th- I don't think there's any excuse for riding on the pavement.
6: But I completely agree with that. But, but do you think perhaps the reaction is disproportionate? I mean, obviously, in this case, it was. And the whole thing's very unfortunate.
5: Well, I think that I, th- I think that it's possible to say that the reaction can be disproportionate because... Everything has now been piled on pedestrians. It's not just the cyclists. We've got e-scooters. We've got e-bikes. We've got skateboards, and everybody's really taken it as open season for the pavement. But, but that effect... and yet that's the only place where pedestrians can walk.
6: But that affects us too. You should, I mean, you should see the trouble cyclists have with e-bikes on the bike lane. You know, they're going at 30 miles an hour. We're scattered like exactly. minnows. So, you know, everyone suffers yeah, from... No,
5: I have every sympathy with that, but I do draw the line at cyclists on the pavements okay. because I think that's, that 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 is really the... That's where there is competition and the only place where pedestrians uh, can have a, have a right to feel, yeah, to th- feel I think safe. that's totally right, but well, maybe a little a little
6: finger wag rather than an actual shove would be more
5: proportionate. That's mine. Um, a little finger wag and a... Um... <laughs> A use of language, shall we say. OK, um, let's, let's compromise, compromise on my use piece. of language. <laughs> As I said in my piece, swearing is really my register, but I understand people who do.
0: <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to interject between two uh, disagreeing Marys, but I, I, do, I do wonder if uh, the headline of your piece is, is true. Uh, you know, have uh, cyclists, do cyclists now have the licence to ride on the pavement? Does, does this ruling mean that?
5: Well, I think it's fair to extrapolate from the ruling that it does recognise um, the right of a cyclist to, uh, to, to, to ride on the pavement, which wasn't there before. Because my understanding is that the default position before was that in most places it's illegal for cyclists to, to, to ride on the pavement, even though that isn't generally enforced. Um, but there the, the seems to be a slight gray area in this case because the council of, 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 of all people seem to seem to be confused as to whether this particular part of the pavement was theoretically something called a shared space where cyclists could ride on the pavement and where pedestrians were expected to share nicely. Um, it didn't look, when you see the pictures and you see the CCTV, it didn't look to me very much like a shared space. But um, that grey area, I suspect, is going to loom rather large
0: if there's an appeal. Isn't that the problem then, uh, Mary W, that that uh, d- 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 this particular part of the road was not very clear what it was? This
6: case is, is an odd one, isn't it, altogether? Because, um, you know, what, what, what was her name? Aureole Grey is... Mm. is reacts oddly she's not just waving at her she actually as as i've seen it looking at the footage deliberately blocks the cyclist the cyclist had she not been 77 herself and a bit bewildered would have gone right to the wall side but she didn't she allowed herself to be ushered into the road where there was a driver who i don't think was paying attention so but i also think that um, the whole publicity surrounding the case is less likely to make me ride on pavements i'm now more scared i'm not incentivized i'm never going on a pavement again
5: it's it's a very interesting and unusual case in the in in, in this it, also in the in the aspect that the two cyclists were women of a certain age um and uh, normally when you have these the, the, these pavement conflicts you've got young men in lycra dashing to get somewhere or trying to deliver something um and you've got um say um a, a, an elderly woman or somebody partially sighted trying to navigate all the obstacles otherwise on the pavement that's the usual conflict of interest on pavements. This was slightly
0: different. Mary and Mary, I think we will have to leave it there. Thank you both very much for coming onto Spectator TV. Lastly, strap in tight because we're about to start talking about corsets. There has been a row in the media, largely, over some Bridgerton actresses, two Bridgerton actresses, who have complained about corsets being far too uncomfortable which then led uh, to reports that Netflix and perhaps the BBC were going to ban them as items of clothing. With me now is the art and culture critic Francesca Peacock, who's also a spectator contributor. Now, Francesca, corsets. Uh, Netflix have said that they're not going to ban corsets. And of course, they were never going to ban corsets, were they? Because corset dramas, bodice-ripping, Dramas uh, are an absolute staple of the entertainment industry Uh, and there was never any realistic chance that they were going to be.
7: I think that's probably true. I think you probably can't have a bodice ripper if you don't have a bodice to rip. But um, the source came from um, an unnamed source who spoke to The Sun and said that off the back of a number of complaints from a couple of actresses on one of their very big shows, Bridgerton, they were going to contemplate banning corsets and um, letting actresses wear their own underwear, which is quite an interesting idea. Um, And. Um, They also said that the BBC might follow suit. And then Netflix um, replied very quickly, saying that wasn't in their plans at all. And they were never going to ban corsets. Um, But it has come after quite a few complaints, which is interesting.
0: Yeah, it's a fundamental threat to their business, (laughs) the lack of a corset. But in your piece, a very good piece in The Spectator this week, you say um, that uh, corsets were not necessarily as uncomfortable. Yes. people think
7: the idea that they are so uncomfortable comes from because we've managed to conflate the idea of tight lacing which is where a woman would be pulled very tightly into a corset to create the illusion of a tiny waist we've conflated that with the idea of a corset or stays or jumps which was just another form of undergarment quite akin to wearing a bra mm.
0: but they were the ones that were tightly pulled in where i mean i've done my research <laughs> they uh deformed rib cages and things like that they, um,
7: so there's some degree of truth about that there's also quite uh so everything we know about that In large part, comes from this, like the Corset controversy, and it was part of like a women's health craze thing. Are women too delicate, too tight lacing? Should they not be doing this? So it's quite hard often to distinguish like fact from fiction and what was just massively hyped up. Um, But certainly, yes, in some cases, tight lacing was very dangerous, and there are like very famous stories of women who managed to get there. waistlines down to like a 16-inch circumference, which is tiny if you think about it. And
0: that's what uh, Vicky Cripps was complaining about. She had to go into a 16-inch waist for the purposes of her film, Corsage.
7: Yes, which obviously if you're going to be in a film named Corsage, you can't really not wear a corset. But um, so that is a film about the Empress Elizabeth of Austria. And she's very famous for being like probably diagnosed with anorexia today. She barely ate a thing. She'd eat like um, just clear beef broth. Um, She exercised every day. She had a gymnasium put into every single one of her palaces. She'd go on for long walks, endlessly dragging her servants behind her in the rain and the cold. And she very famously had um, a 16-inch circumference waist. And she would wear um, a different type of corset actually to what was fashionable in court at the time. Hers was um, leather all over rather than just boned in different places. And it would be pulled so tightly by so many people that she would have a 16-inch waist.
0: And uh, it's interesting, is it not, that the, uh, the, the obsession with a very, very slim, slim waist has been, is centuries old, busts and bottoms yeah. uh, can do what they want to, to a certain extent over the years but uh wastes have always been an obsession
7: definitely so the corset goes hand in hand um so initially if you take the elizabethan period for example you'd have stays which would create like an upside down triangle effect Um, and then dresses were incredibly wide so wide that women can walk through rooms they took up more space at court um so definitely a slim waist has been an obsession for a very long time but I think it's quite important to note that um, it's not necessarily just a female um, ideal as well. So in the same Elizabethan period, men were wearing things to um, tighten in their waists, especially as well in the 18th century, like the dandies, late 18th century, early 19th century, Beau Brummel, there was a corset named after him for men.
0: Yeah, I'm breathing in because I haven't, I haven't got <laughs> my corset on today. Uh, you also say that it's, it's similar to Spanx, which is the, the yeah. Kim Kardashian. Just explain for the viewers who don't know what Spanx are.
7: So very um, tight underwear that looks far smaller than the body that it's about to be put on. And um, it's crazy at the moment to wear shapewear. And I think it probably always has been, actually, in many different ways. This is a different manifestation of it. Um, but I just think it's quite interesting to see that maybe the Bridgerton line of corsetry perhaps has more in common with Spanx than it does with actual 18th century corsetry because, um, well, early 19th century, so Bridgerton set in the Regency period um which was one moment in british and french history where corsets weren't actually necessarily all the rage um, women could wear either a much shorter version of a corset which didn't constrict their waist or nothing at all and they would draw attention to their nakedness by um going out in very thin dresses and like splattering their dresses with water um but so this is one period where because of the empire like waistline um you didn't necessarily have to wear a corset but in the bridgerton they all are so they're perhaps historically and accurately like um, pursuing this idea of a very small waistline.
0: And Spanx, there's no suggestion that the Spanx are bad for you? Or, or,
7: I don't think or so. Crazy. Kim Kardashian did go through waist training though to wear a corset, which is quite an interesting idea. yeah.
0: Interesting, what's waist training?
7: So it's where you um, wear progressively tighter corsets to try really? and make your waist as tiny as possible. Okay. So, so I think there is a suggestion that that is bad for you, yes.
0: Francesca, this has been very enlightening. <laughs> Thank you Thank very you. much indeed. Thank you. That's it for Spectator TV this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. You do that by clicking the subscribe button at the bottom of the screen. And also, of course, the bell icon at the top of the screen to make sure you don't ever miss an episode. Thank you very much for watching. See you next time.